from NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. President Biden will deliver his State of the Union address this week. Find out what to expect. With U.S.-China tensions high, some American lawmakers want TikTok banned, but experts say it's complicated. And the Queen Beyonce is up for top awards at the Grammys tonight. Plus, we talked to actor Lily Tomlin about her brand of comedy and her new movie, 80 for Brady. I don't like to see uh, a male comic do, you know, mother-in-law jokes. I'd rather do the mother-in-law. It's Sunday, February 5th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. China's defense ministry is criticizing the U.S. decision to shoot down a balloon spotted floating across the U.S., calling the use of force an overreaction. The incident has provoked furor on both sides. Here's NPR's Emily Fang reporting. China's defense ministry said Sunday it, quote, reserved the right to use any means necessary to respond to the U.S.'s shooting down of its balloon. China continues to insist the balloon was a civilian airship used primarily for research and not the surveillance vehicle U.S. defense officials say it almost certainly was. A U.S. F-22 fighter jet shot down the balloon off the coast of South Carolina this weekend, a move China condemned, saying it, quote, violated international practice. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken canceled a Sunday trip to Beijing. It was a trip meant to stabilize the U.S.-China relationship, which instead has only worsened. Emily Fang, NPR News. President Biden says he approved the downing of the balloon and followed the advice of military officials by waiting to bring it down over water rather than risk debris falling on populated areas. One South Carolina resident who witnessed the fighter jet fire on the balloon said she did not anticipate being in a Top Gun movie. A state of emergency remains in effect and a federal investigation is underway following Friday night's freight train derailment in eastern Ohio. NPR's Maria Andrusovich reports a derailment caused a massive fire and a series of explosions. The National Transportation Safety Board arrived Saturday afternoon to investigate the derailment, which involved 50 train cars, 20 of which contained hazardous materials. The contents of all the cars is not known, but several were carrying vinyl chloride, a carcinogen. East Palestine Mayor Trent Conaway says more than 50 fire departments from three states responded to the accident. Residents have been evacuated from the area. It's unclear when it will be safe for them to return. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention officials say they are concerned that the state of Tennessee has decided to refuse federal funding for HIV prevention. Blake Farmer of member station WPLN reports part of the state is considered a national hotspot for transmission. When word got out that Tennessee was walking away from $8 million, Governor Bill Lee said the state would spend its own money on HIV prevention, but now the priority would be first responders, mothers and children, and victims of human trafficking. However, it's young black men who have sex with men at highest risk in Tennessee. Dr. Ima Ahankai of Vanderbilt says they've been marginalized since the early days of HIV. It feels really difficult to say that we haven't learned these lessons already as a country. Declining the federal money will also help Tennessee cut off funding to Planned Parenthood, which used some of this CDC money for condom distribution. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville. And you're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Woburn teachers and city leaders are heading back to the bargaining table today. School has been called off for the past week throughout an illegal teacher strike. Both the city and the educators say they've agreed on a primary contract, but Mayor Scott Galvin says they are still butting heads on the return to work agreement. The city wants $250,000 to cover costs from the strike. That's part of the return agreement that we would get back the costs that were incurred because of this illegal strike, and that's a condition of that agreement. Right now, we're stuck on that, uh, stuck on the numbers. Teachers are offering to donate to several city charities and negotiate later over other monetary damages. The Alewife station on the MBTA's red line will remain closed today. After a car crashed on the top floor of the station's parking garage yesterday, the crash left the car teetering on the edge of the garage and sent a concrete barrier and debris into the station's atrium. The debris injured a young girl who was taken to the hospital with minor injuries. The Cambridge Fire Department says the station will stay shut down pending a safety evaluation. Shuttle buses are replacing trains between Alewife and Davis. An unseasonably warm winter so far this year has created some snowmaking challenges for local ski mountains, but Blue Hill Ski Area in Canton took advantage of the cold weather this weekend to make snow. Blue Hill's general manager, Molly Ross, says the high winds added some challenges to the operation. Still, she says she's grateful for the drop in temperatures. We kind of have had a slow start to this year where we haven't had as many opportunities because of the humidity and the temperature. But moving into February, we've had a really great start. And it just seems like the the lows are starting to go back into kind of that normal range. The newly made snow should be enough to open two more trails. It is 32 degrees in Boston, some sunshine today, breezy, and highs in the mid-40s. Lows in the low 30s overnight. Tomorrow, a mostly cloudy start, then becoming sunny, and Monday's highs in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at Mott.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Tuesday, President Biden delivers the State of the Union address. And what can we expect? Likely something on the debt limit, the Russian war in Ukraine, and the economy. Maybe something about that Chinese balloon the U.S. shot down yesterday off the coast, off the Carolina coast. And certainly sharp distinctions between his vision and that of Republicans, since Tuesday may mark the unofficial start of Biden's 2024 campaign. We're joined now by NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Hi, Franco. Hey, Aisha. So let's start with the balloon. What has the White House had to say about it? Yeah, Biden told reporters yesterday that he wanted the balloon shot down on Wednesday. But his military advisors asked him to wait until it was in a safer area. That happened yesterday, as you noted, after it made its way into the waters outside South Carolina. And you know, having covered Asia, that this is just already added to really tough tensions with China and Secretary of State Antony Blinken. He actually called off a big trip to Beijing. He was going to leave on Friday. That was partially intended to help better those relations. 
So uh, moving on to Tuesday, what's at the top of your list of things you're going to be listening for? And I know you're going to be listening closely during that State of the Union. Man, there's going to be a lot going on. You know, President Biden has, though, been traveling a lot, you know, testing out some of the themes we expect him to highlight. You know, he's going to talk about his accomplishments, the accomplishments of the administration, like all the bridges and tunnels being built by the infrastructure bill. But Aisha, I am particularly interested in how he's going to approach two issues that he's been facing some pushback on. One is support for Ukraine and two is immigration. You'll remember last year he had rousing bipartisan ovations when he called for support for Ukraine. But it's been a year, you know, since the invasion, and there's a growing number of Republicans who have been speaking out more about the levels of money and aid leaving the U.S. for Ukraine. And it's having an impact on some voters. You know, Biden's going to make a case that it's in the U.S. interest to keep supporting Ukraine. And then on immigration, I really don't expect him to say too much, but the border is an issue for him. And he recognized that challenge with his trip last month to the border. And Republican strategists tell me that ignoring the issue of the border in his speech is only going to give more ammunition to his political opponents. So he's going to have to deal with that. So what about 2024? Like, how much does the potential for reelection play into this speech? Yeah, a lot. And this is probably going to be the part that I'm going to be listening to most. Biden has not officially declared he's running again, of course, but it's increasingly looking that way. The State of the Union is not your typical campaign speech, but with 40 plus million viewers, it's very much a political speech. Ian Russell, a Democratic strategist, told me that you can bet that Biden will begin to lay the groundwork for reelection by showing two visions for America, his own and that of Republicans. The State of the Union typically is not a um, an elbow throwing political event. It, you tend to have higher minded rhetoric. You're appealing to a broad uh, segment of the American electorate. So I don't think he'll bring the sharpest contrast, but I still think you'll see it there. You know, but Biden also has to be really careful in this area as he's promised to find ways to work with Republicans. You know, at a recent fundraiser, for example, Biden actually called House Speaker Kevin McCarthy a decent man. As you know, that's basically high praise considering some of the political battles the two have had. But they also have to find ways to work together on things like the debt limit and other issues. And so finally, what do we know about the president's guest for the State of the Union and, and why is it important? Yeah, the White House is keeping a pretty close hold on Biden's guests so far, but you can be sure that those invited will reflect the issues that he wants to highlight, as he did last year when he recognized the Ukraine ambassador. But I can also tell you that the parents of Tyree Nichols will be there. Nichols was the African-American man who died after being beaten by a group of Memphis, Tennessee police officers. He'll be the guest of Representative Steve Horsford, the chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus, which has been pressing Biden to take up police reform. It's actually the first time since the beginning of the pandemic that lawmakers are allowed to bring guests. There are no more social distancing requirements anymore. It's going to be more crowded. So there's going to be some energy in that gallery that we have not seen in several years. 
And, and you'll be on the air Tuesday covering the address in Spanish, right? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty exciting. I mean, it's the first time. It's a bit of an experiment. It won't be all in Spanish. We'll sprinkle in some English. The idea is this is supposed to be for folks who are comfortable living in both languages. And it's just really neat because, you know, we have so many Latinos at NPR now. You know, we're really situated for this as well. I'm at the White House. Yep. Claudia Grisales is covering Congress. And that's not all. It's going to be fun. Yes, that, that is awesome. White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Thank you so much, Franco. Thanks, Aisha. As we say, we expect President Biden to really talk up the economy Tuesday. But as we've all heard over and over again, the economy has been in unprecedented territory. So are things really looking up? Betsy Stevenson teaches public policy and economics at the University of Michigan. She served on the Council of Economic Advisors from 2013 to 2015, and she joins us now. Welcome to the program. It's great to talk with you. So let's start with Friday's surprisingly strong employment numbers. We learned this morning that the economy's created 517,000 jobs just last month. Biden called it strikingly good news. Do you, and more importantly, does the Federal Reserve agree that these jobs numbers are good news? Well, I think the jobs are great news. Uh, let me say it's a crazy large number. It might even end up being revised down. We get revisions to this data all the time. And that's actually where the real good news was in Friday's report, was that we saw upward revisions for November and December's jobs, and actually upward revisions overall for 2022 and 2021. And all of that put together says that we were adding over 400,000 jobs a month in 2022. It's definitely something he's going to want to brag about in the State of the Union. How is the Federal Reserve looking at this? The Fed loves people having jobs as much as anybody else. But what they have to worry about is that pressure in the labor market, a lot of employers wanting to hire and not being able to find enough workers will lead them to start raising wages a lot. And then when they're paying those higher prices for the people who are doing the jobs, they're going to have to turn around and raise prices for their customers, leading to what they call a wage price spiral. So it's not the jobs that they're worried about. It's that relationship between the potential for higher wages to lead to higher inflation. Mm. But is there, um, I mean, for the for the average person out there listening to this um, who's like, okay, well, the unemployment seems to be low, but I'm, I'm paying more at the grocery store and, you know, it's going to cost me more to get a car, buy a house or whatever. Like, does the average person feel like the economy is, you know, going like gangbusters or whatever? You know, I, I think you just really nailed what President Biden's problem is. The thing about inflation is it hurts us all a little because it's terrible, right? You go to the store and we're all talking about the price of eggs. We feel it. We feel rents going up and food prices going up. But you know what really stinks is when you're afraid you're going to lose your job and you're not going to have any income coming in maybe for several months. And those are people who potentially lose their homes can't feed their children, can't feed themselves. And those are real devastating outcomes. So what Biden has to try to do is convince people, look, we're coming out of the worst pandemic 
And we've managed to do it with just a few bumps in the road. And yes, those bumps in the road hurt us all a little bit, but we're going to get to a full and complete recovery with much less pain than we could have had. I want to turn to the the idea that the U.S. has reached a debt ceiling, um, which Congress sets. Republicans want spending cuts to approve raising the debt ceiling. Democrats are saying Republicans want to come for your Social Security, your Medicare, and that's a non-starter. Um, but my understanding is that you think there does need to be some type of compromise on cutting Social Security and Medicare, or at least reforming those programs? I personally would like to see us raise a little bit more revenue so that we could solve this problem through bringing in more revenue, not just through cuts. But I do think at some point we are going to have to tackle our entitlement programs because we are not on track to be able to meet our obligations going forward. And it's a mistake for the government to wait to tackle Social Security reforms until we're in a crisis mode. People need to be able to plan. They need to be able to count on their Social Security. And so I think that we need real, earnest, bipartisan discussions about the potential areas for compromise to achieve that. That's economist Betsy Stevenson, formerly of the Council of Economic Advisors and now with the University of Michigan. Thank you so much for joining us. It was nice talking with you. This afternoon on All Things Considered, The Road to Healing. For more than a century, abuse and misconduct took place at federal Indian boarding schools all over the country. Just about a year ago, the Interior Department released a harsh report on its role in it all. Now the Interior Secretary is on a listening tour to hear directly from Native people about their experiences, their feelings, and the lasting effects of official misconduct. NPR attended two listening sessions, and you can hear all about them this afternoon by listening live at the station's website or at npr.org. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Thanks for joining us at 90.9 WBUR. At 1 this afternoon, you'll have a new chance to connect with Tiziana Deering and Radio Boston. That's Radio Boston at 1 today. Then keep listening at 2 for It's Been a Minute at its new time here on WBUR. It's 918 and ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday, a preview of tonight's Grammy Awards, also a conversation with Lily Tomlin. It is 32 degrees in Boston, partly sunny skies today, a breezy Sunday, and temperatures in the mid-40s. Sending Winston flowers from WBUR supports your source for news. See all our choices and send yours today to save 10%. Visit WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bernadine Sun Megason and Tim O'Sullivan with Compass New England, helping clients navigate the evolving Massachusetts real estate market. More at homesbybernadine.com. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. The mayor of East Palestine, Ohio, is urging people to avoid the area following Friday night's train derailment that sparked a huge fire. The fire is still burning, and officials say about 20 of the derailed cars were carrying hazardous material, including vinyl chloride.
Los Angeles Lakers star LeBron James is expected to become the NBA's all-time leading scorer this week. After last night's game, he needs just 36 points to pass Lakers' great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's record of 38,387. And the northeast U.S. is uh, thawing out today. Temperatures are expected to rise into the 40s in New England. A day after sub-zero temperatures and wind chills had set a record 108 degrees below zero on the summit of New Hampshire's Mount Washington. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done, no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like webcams and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staplesconnect.com. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Things between the U.S. and China are tense. Just yesterday, the U.S. military shot down a suspected Chinese spy balloon, and China threatened to retaliate. And also, a growing number of lawmakers, including Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, are trying to ban Chinese-owned TikTok from Apple and Google app stores. Emily Baker-White joins us now to tell us why. She's a senior technology writer at Forbes. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So before we begin, we should note that Apple is one of NPR's financial supporters. But Emily, what is prompting Michael Bennett and others to call for a TikTok ban? So TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, is headquartered in China. And the Chinese government has a higher level of control over the private corporations that work out of China than we do over private companies that work in the United States. And so the fear is that the Chinese government could use TikTok against the national security interests of the United States. And there are two main ways that lawmakers are worried that could happen. The first of those ways is they're worried that TikTok collects a huge amount of data about us. The second sort of bucket of concern is about what we see on TikTok. TikTok is predicting what it thinks you want to see and feeding you a bunch of that content. There's not a lot of transparency about why you see what you see on TikTok. There is concern that, again, because ByteDance is a Chinese company and ByteDance owns TikTok, the Chinese government could seek to subtly influence what that recommendations algorithm shows people, either in the United States or, or in other countries, to sort of tweak the public discourse on certain issues that are important to the Chinese government. TikTok has millions of users in the U.S. I'm wondering, like, how would a ban even work? Like, can you really, you know, stop it now that the genie's kind of out of the bottle? I think lawmakers are moving slowly and carefully to try to figure out how they would actually enact such a ban and how they would make sure that a ban would stand up to legal challenges. If there is a ban enacted in the United States, it seems 
fairly clear to me that TikTok and ByteDance, whichever the entity they decide to go with, will challenge it in court and say, you can't do that. And so some people have criticized the idea of the United States banning an app from civilians' phones as as being a little too much like the internet restrictions that they have in China, actually. We don't have a sort of censorship firewall in the United States. The government doesn't control the app stores. It doesn't control what we can download and what we can view online. Mm. NPR reached out to TikTok last week, and what they told us was that they would not share U.S. data with the Chinese government and that, you know, it also has a plan to address these concerns. What do you know about this plan? So this is what TikTok calls Project Texas. This is a plan that's been in the works for a long, long time. And their goal is to separate out U.S. user data and all of the employees who touch U.S. user data into a sort of separate hermetically sealed unit that is based in the United States and say that ByteDance can continue to own TikTok and to own TikTok U.S., but Only the people employed at TikTok US by TikTok US would have access to that US user data. The details of the plan have evolved over time. One sort of focal point is a partnership with Oracle, which will apparently have some amount of oversight and control over how data is moved and to where. Uh, Another key part of it is that there would be US government appointed sort of controllers who would be able to go in and assess whether there was any tomfoolery going on with either transfers of user data or with attempts to change the algorithm. Hmm. Well, it sounds like that would require some level of trust. What needs to happen to assuage the concerns? Is Project Texas enough? I think they are trying to create a system that doesn't require trust. They are trying to create a system where you don't have to trust ByteDance. You only have to trust Oracle. And you only have to trust the U.S. government-approved people who will be sort of evaluating the systems. But the question is, can they really set up a system like that? Because TikTok and all of its sort of myriad internal tools, like any app of this size, there are dozens and dozens of internal sort of back-end tools that send data from here to there, not for any nefarious reason, just because that's how, like, these apps run. And all of those were built by people in China. (laughs) And proving a negative, proving that you've gotten all of the ways that data can flow, that you know every single one and that you've closed them all off, it's a Herculean task. That's Emily Baker-White, senior technology writer at Forbes. Thank you so much. Thank you. NPR reached out to Google and Apple for comment. No response was received by our airtime. Young love can be so overwhelming. The stolen glances, the butterflies in the stomach, the drama... But mix in the racism and misogyny of the 1950s and that cute puppy love could easily become corrosive and dangerous. 
That's the backdrop for the new novel, The House of Eve. It follows the lives of two young black women, teenager Ruby trying to escape poverty in Philadelphia and Eleanor, a student at Howard University, trying to figure out how to fit in with the elites of Washington, D.C. They both fall in love with men who society says should be off limits to them. Sadiqwa Johnson is the author of The House of Eve. She joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure and an honor to be here. Tell us more about Ruby and Eleanor, whose lives eventually intersect. They have different backgrounds and interests, but I mean, I feel like they have some similarities too. I think they have similarities as well. I mean, they're both two young girls. Uh, Ruby is 15. And when I started working on the novel, the thing that I knew about her was that she was beautiful, that she had a body that was shaped like a Coca-Cola bottle, and that her mother did not want her. Eleanor, you know, is from Ohio. She comes from a loving home, but she comes to D.C. with secrets and diving into a world that she did not know existed, which is the black elite of Washington, D.C. during that time, it really uh, transports her and changes her life in ways that she had not expected. You know, I read in an interview um, where you said you've kind of been bit by the historical fiction bug. Your last novel was set during slavery. Um, What made you want to set this novel in the 1950s? The House of Eve was inspired by thoughts of my grandmother. She had gotten pregnant with my mother at 14 and had her at 15. She was unmarried. She had her out of wedlock. And there was a lot of shame. My mother told me that she didn't know my grandmother was her mother until she was in the third grade. I remember there being this turbulence between the two of them, and I couldn't put my finger on what it was. And it just really made me think of what life was like for for women in in those situations. So I know a major aspect of this book is unwed mothers and how pregnant girls are often shipped off to these homes where they were treated so callously. Like you researched this. How close is this story that you created to the experiences of, of real people? Well, when I was thinking about what did women during this time do, you know, this was pre-Roe versus Wade, you know, and so they didn't have a lot of options. And I stumbled upon these maternity homes where young women would go in um, at a certain point of their pregnancy, they would hide from the world, and they would surrender their babies. And I say surrender because oftentimes these women were forced to give up their children. They were told that if they didn't, that they could go to jail. Uh, But it was a way for them to start over like nothing ever happened. But as I was doing the research and I was reading all of these stories of these women, I couldn't locate a single Black woman in the story. These homes were largely for white women. And that is what led me to these elite families in Washington, D.C. I thought, what did women in that circle do? You know, if they wanted to adopt a baby in secret. And remember, in the 40s and the 50s, even adoption wasn't something that we talked about you know, on the forefront the way we do now. So everything was was shame and secrecy and hidden and, you know, sort of backdoor behind the scenes. Tell me about what you learned about elite Black society in the 1950s while writing this book. 
Well, when I was working with the character of Eleanor, I was thinking about uh, Toni Morrison. And I remember seeing her documentary, The Pieces I Am. And she said that she didn't know that black folks separated themselves by color until she stepped foot on Howard University. Because in the Midwest, black folks were so busy trying to get along with everybody, they didn't have time to pit themselves against each other. And as I was researching the story, I read a book called Our Kind of People by Otis Lawrence Graham that talked about these very elite Black families in D.C. where they sort of only fraternized together. You know, they married each other, they hung out together. It was really, really hard to penetrate these circles. And the reason why was because they were educated and they thought, well, what do I have in common with a sharecropper. We, we're not speaking the same language. And so protecting that elite circle was very important to them. You know, and I, I wanted to get into this idea of motherhood because it's so deep within this. You have Ruby's mother, you know, who basically ends up abandoning her, but her Aunt Marie steps in. There comes a point where Eleanor views motherhood as a way to kind of solidify her as a woman and as a wife. But there's also all of the shame that these mothers carry or attempting to be a mother that I could relate to and feel in my bones. Did writing this book change anything about the way you see motherhood? Yeah. Eleanor came to the story much later. The story was actually Ruby's. I knew that, you know, she was a young girl and she was in danger and, you know, things happened to her. But I couldn't figure out how to make it a full 90,000 word story. And when Eleanor came, she came with this rage and this desperation. And I felt her saying, I'm a barren woman and I need to have a baby, you know? And, and like you said, there was a lot of shame around not being able to produce a child. And so working through what motherhood meant for Eleanor, on one hand, it was about having a child. But on the other hand, it was about keeping her family together and making her mark in a community that did not want her. And so that was her tie-in. You know, this is obviously Black History Month, and we often celebrate the stories that are are well-known. Your book is about personal stories that aren't well documented or even acknowledged, you know, why do you think it's important that we learn about these stories, particularly about Black women that may not have always been told? Well, for me, uh, I have a teenage daughter who says, you know, Mom, every year we learn about Martin Luther King. We learn about Jesse Owens. We learn about, you know, uh, Jackie Robinson. But we don't learn about, you know, the Mary Lumpkins of the world or even Dorothy Porter, who plays a really big role in The House of Eve. And Dorothy Porter was a real-life woman who worked at Howard's Library. She amassed the largest collection of African and African-American and Caribbean art in the world. She spent 40 years uh, on this collection and it's housed at Howard University. And so she was a real life hero. And when I discovered her, I thought, oh, she needs to be in my book, you know? And so when I can highlight 
a woman, a black woman who people don't know about, you know, I feel that it's my duty to to give them their shine. That's Sadiqwa Johnson. Her new novel is The House of Eve. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Behind the headlines of a Palestinian gunman's recent attack outside a Jerusalem synagogue are the stories of families trying to make sense of what happened that night. NPR's Daniel Estrin brings us this on the family of two of the victims and the family of the gunman. I visit the small apartment of an Israeli family torn apart. Tal Barashi sits on a thin mattress on the floor. It's the Jewish mourning custom. Recently, she mourned the death of one brother. They attribute his death to post-traumatic stress disorder from his experiences in one of Israel's wars. Now she's mourning another brother, Eli, killed a couple of nights before we talked. He very loved to help people all the time. He see all the time search for people who need help. He and his wife were eating Sabbath dinner in this apartment. They heard shooting outside, ran out to help the wounded, and the Palestinian gunman killed them and five other people. Then police killed him. Arashi says in Hebrew, what kind of Jewish state are we? We can't walk outside safely in our own country. She reflects on the shared humanity of Jews and Arabs. We are the same. We have two legs, two hands, two eyes, one heart. We all together. Why we don't live together like a family? Why I need to sit here and cry about my brother? She says she wants measure for measure with the family of the Palestinian gunmen. We suffer. They should suffer. We lose family. They should need a lose too. Israel is taking measures. It sealed the attacker's family's home and promises to demolish it. She wants them to be exiled. That kind of deportation was a campaign promise of Israel's new far-right security minister, Itamar Ben-Gvir. I hope Ben-Gvir will do something. I believe Ben-Gvir, but I need to see he'll do something. Just down the street from the gunman's home, now sealed, my NPR colleague Peter Kenyon visited the gunman's uncle, Ali Alkam. He says his father, the gunman's grandfather, was stabbed and killed in 1998, the first of three Palestinian victims in an infamous stabbing spree in Jerusalem that year. Israeli media have been revisiting this history after Alkam's attack. An Israeli far-right extremist was arrested for the murders, but later released. The accused stabber's spokesman was none other than Itamar Ben-Gvir, today the Israeli security minister acting to punish the family of the gunman. Alkam says his nephew, the gunman Khairi Alkam, was named after his grandfather and that the family tried to hide from him what happened to his grandfather, but eventually he found out. Was 21-year-old Khairi avenging his grandfather's death when he opened fire on Israelis? Or was he avenging an Israeli military operation that killed Palestinians a day before? 
A 21-year-old boy doesn't just pursue death on his own, he was in grief. My father was killed 25 years ago. He says, we are a peace-loving people, but then says his nephew was a soldier of God. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Jerusalem. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Mourners are gathering this afternoon in Norwood for a celebration of life to remember Tyler Lawrence. The 13-year-old boy was fatally shot while walking through a Mattapan neighborhood last Sunday morning. The Norwood 8th grader often visited his grandparents in Mattapan on weekends. In the bitter cold yesterday, a pipe at Boston Medical Center froze and burst. The emergency department moved patients to other areas of the hospital. The BMC emergency department will stay closed until Tuesday. Also yesterday, low temperatures caused a malfunction in the sprinkler system at the Wang Theater in Boston just minutes before a show. Audience members waited outside in the cold until theater officials announced the show would not go on. Both of last night's Impractical Joker shows have been rescheduled for April. This is WBUR. I'm Gabriela Emanuel, a reporter here at WBUR. Growing up, I remember working through these learn-to-read books while a lot of my classmates were just whizzing through chapter books. I had bad dyslexia. My parents would come home from these long days at work, 10, 12-hour shifts, and they'd sit down with me and we'd sound out syllables and then string it into words. Now that I have my own kids, I think about their commitment differently. I see the support, the love that it takes to help someone else do something that's hard for them. This year, I will be sending each of them a bouquet of Winston flowers through WBUR. We used to listen to the station together. I found it easier than reading the newspaper, which was hard for me. If you want to thank someone, consider sending Winston flowers. It's a way to say thank you and also support the news at the same time. Visit WBUR.org to get started. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Cruise Lines, cruising the Mississippi River, where passengers can experience Southern culture and visit Civil War battlefields. Learn more at AmericanCruiseLines.com NPR. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. School choice is a term that often leads to heated debate, especially when it comes to programs that give families public dollars to send their kids to private schools. Barely a month into 2023, and these programs are already having a banner year. Families in Iowa and Utah will soon be able to get government help to pay for their kids' private education. And in several other states, lawmakers are weighing whether to adopt or expand similar programs. For more, I'm joined by NPR education correspondent Corey Turner. Good morning. Hey, Aisha. 
So can you give us a quick refresher? What do we need to know about these private school choice programs and how they work? Yeah, so the term folks are probably most familiar with is vouchers. There are also education savings accounts, but honestly, I'm going to lump them together because they are both essentially about the same thing, which is states letting families spend state taxpayer dollars in non-public schools. And that includes private religious schools and in some cases, even homeschooling. As for why we're seeing this big push now, especially towards bigger statewide programs, I don't think it's a stretch to say the pandemic played a really big role here, Aisha. Fights over public school closures, uh, masking requirements, now fights over critical race theory and book banning have really, I think, helped Republicans sell vouchers. Even in states where it wasn't that long ago, voters were pretty skeptical. So let's cut to the chase, though. Like, is there evidence that these private school choice programs are good for kids? So there are a couple different answers to this. First, it depends on where you live. Private school choice cannot help you if there is no private school to choose, which is the case in roughly 40% of counties in Iowa. Um, Also, even though vouchers are commonly billed as a helping hand to low-income families especially, they're often not enough to fully cover tuition, especially at a good private school. Um, As for the research on student performance, it's complicated, especially when you start talking about these bigger statewide programs. So I reached out to a guy who knows this research backwards and forwards. His name is Douglas Harris at Tulane. When we look at all the evidence, students who use vouchers either do no better or in some cases worse than they would have done if they had just attended traditional public schools. And Aisha, that helps explain why the messaging now, as opposed to what we've heard in the past, is really less about academics and much more about politics and these culture war issues we mentioned. Teachers unions and Democrats argue that vouchers hurt public schools, which educate the vast majority of America's children. Are they right about that? Well, and it's not just Democrats. In Utah, we saw the state's Republican-dominated school board vote against their new plan. Um, I think there is legitimate concern that these programs could undermine public education, at least in the long run, because it is true for every child who leaves a public school, that school loses at least some funding at the state level. It is worth noting, though, at least in the early years, Iowa's program is actually projected uh, to most benefit students who were never in a public school. So, okay, explain that to me. (laughs) Yeah, it's a little counterintuitive. I was digging through projections for Iowa's program, and it confused me. So I called up Ben Irwin. He's a senior policy analyst with the Nonpartisan Education Commission of the States. Is these programs are not necessarily resulting in a mass exodus of public school students, but a lot of students who are already in private schools and able to take advantage of the program to cover a portion of that tuition. Irwin says this is true in Arizona's program and probably of Iowa's, given these projections. In fact, looking through them, Aisha, the vast majority of kids that will be helped by Iowa's program in the first three years were already enrolled in private schools. And the majority of those we know are from middle and upper income families. Now, whether you think that's good policy or bad policy, it is clearly a huge new expense for the state, about $345 million a year in Iowa. And it is a fundamental expansion of its role in education. So one last question. Uh, Are private schools that accept this public money going to have to meet certain requirements um, that public schools do? 
So it depends on the program, but for the most part, no, private schools are not held to the same standards that public schools are. I have seen examples of private schools in voucher states turning kids away for a whole host of reasons, test scores, religion, gender identity. I still personally remember a mother I met when I was reporting in Indiana who wanted to use a voucher to enroll her son who has autism at their parish school, but the head of school refused, saying they just couldn't meet his needs. You know, some states have responded by including anti-discrimination language in their private school choice bills, but this remains a very real concern. NPR education correspondent Corey Turner, thank you so much. You're welcome, Aisha. Okay, the Grammys are tonight. And yes, it's the biggest night in music, but it's also supposed to be a big night for my girl, Queen B herself. this but I was dancing in the studio I love that album that was Beyonce's Break My Soul from her album Renaissance it's nominated in the big three Grammy categories and joining us now is NPR music critic Ann Powers hey Ann happy b-day happy b-weekend in fact (laughs) exactly so you know I'm gonna try to put on my journalistic hat and not be too biased here (laughs) but I mean the big wins tonight feel like they should be inevitable for Beyonce right that's the word on the street for sure but you know she's received a lot of snubs in these top categories from the Grammys Mm -mm. in the past so I think the album that's going to win this year is one that takes people on a journey to be a little bit cliche. Yes. And no album took us on a journey the way that Renaissance Ooh, did. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> right on. Let's look at Beyonce's competition, if we can call them that. Um, I know <laughs> that this person is one of them. My truth too complicated to hide now. Can I open up? Is it safe or not? I'm afraid a little. You relate or not? Have faith a little. I might take my time. Ain't no saving face this time. That's Kendrick Lamar's Die Hard. Give us a sense of who else is nominated in the big categories. It's kind of like three tiers as I see it. There's the elite. Adele, for example, Taylor Swift, and relatively newer additions to that category like Harry Styles, Lizzo, and Brandi Carlile. There's a couple of left field newcomers like guitarist Steve Lacey and Nashville's viral sensation Gail. And then Bad Bunny, the face of global Latin pop. I'd like to see him have a good year this year. And, and so there's always a lot of interest from fans in the industry in Best New Artist. So how's that category looking this year? I really love the Best New Artist category this year because it offers a a snapshot of the eclecticism of this field and of what's happening in pop music right now. We have Latin artists like Brazil's Anita and the kind of R&B indie soul artist Omar Apollo. We have Molly Tuttle from the bluegrass world uh, with her great record, Crooked Tree. And then we have a really interesting couple of jazz artists, the duo Domi and J.D. Beck and the extraordinary young singer Samara Joy, who became a viral sensation on TikTok this past year. 
And I'm hyped for the rock bands that are nominated, you know, Wet Leg with their hilarious song, Chase Long, made a huge sensation, and the Italian glam rock band and Eurovision winners, Maniskin. I really can't wait to see their acceptance speech if they win. They recently staged a group marriage devoting themselves to each other as a band. And if that's not passion for music, honestly, I don't know what is. I think we should give them an award just for that. I'm begging, begging you to put your loving hand out, baby. I'm begging, begging you to put your loving hand out, darling. NPR music critic and powers, and thank you so much for joining us. And thank you. I walk away, you want me there. Tom Brady may be retiring, he says, for good, but in the new movie, 80 for Brady, we get to revisit one of his greatest wins, the 2017 Super Bowl. In the film, Lily Tomlin plays one of four friends trying to make their dream of seeing the football star play that game come true. Maybe I'd just stay home. And mope around? No. We're going to the Super Bowl to enjoy men the way the Romans did. Sweaty, piled on top of one another, tight pants. The other three friends are played by the great Rita Moreno, Jane Fonda, and Sally Field. We're joined now by Lily Tomlin. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, that's right. I'm totally happy to be here. So this week, Tom Brady announced that he is finally retiring for good. Do you think that it was because of the movie? He felt like he had fulfilled <laughs> everything he needed to fulfill? Um, no, I, I, I don't really think it, and I don't even know if it's going to stick. <laughs> I mean, he could change his mind again, too. <laughs> In the movie, you play four friends who are trying to get to the Super Bowl. You love Tom Brady. You know, in the movie, he's talking to you. He's encouraging you. What, what do you feel like you can take from Tom Brady, like, for, for your life? <laughs> well, they, I mean, I'm not sure. They might arrest me from or put me in a, some <laughs> home. He talks to me quite often. <laughs> in the movie, yes. No one else sees him. <laughs> I seem to hear him. Yes. <laughs> and what I what stood out to me about the film is not only you have a lot of fun, obviously, but it's really a story about the friendship between these women. And I, I saw an interview where Jane Fonda had this beautiful saying where she said, like, women, you know, men sit beside each other, but women sit across from each other. They look each other in the eye right. um, when they're friends. What does this movie tell us about what it means for women to support each other? I think it's kind of a, a natural impulse that somehow it's gotten corrupted over time in the um, competitive society we live in. And now women are coming around to being their true selves. Uh, they do have that kind of interest in one another as opposed to the male friendship that is not as supportive, is not as emotional. Women always congregated and they were left at home to care for the children, to cook and harvest food and now women have more freedom and they're they seem to be really into that kind of trip mm. you know the thing that brought the women the four women together uh around football in the movie was your character's chemotherapy treatment and you know recently we found out that that jane fonda was you know dealing with cancer in real life like 
right. what was that like having kind of art and life intersect? In a way, women of our age are dealing with that all the time in some peripheral arm's length way. It's like, you know, you've lived more of your life than you have left. I used to say to Jane, uh, well, I wonder which one of us will die first. Oh, I mean, that no. was, <laughs> it was, it Don't was say uh, that. jocular, you know. Yes, yeah, yeah. One might say. Yes. And um, it's not so far from uh, the reality of where we are. I mean, on a, on a lighter topic, there was a lot of dancing in this movie. <laughs> what, like, did you, what was it like doing the choreography for this? I did notice in one of the dance numbers, you were like in the back. Um, well, yeah, I, I put front. myself back there. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, uh, although I could have probably kept up with them, but I was just, uh, I was unsure about what we were doing at the stadium at that time. Yeah. And it was better if I was in the back. <laughs> Sally said about, you know, about Rita, she said uh, she was like all hepped up and because she was like keeping up with Rita and Rita's like such a dancer and has been a dancer for many decades. And then Rita said to her, well, yeah, but I was just dancing down. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't want to be accused of that. I didn't want to be like have, have Rita turn to me and say, and that goes for you too. <laughs> Are there enough scripts out there for women in their 60s, 70s, and 80s? Is it getting better? Well, I mean, if you looked at us, you'd think so. Uh, Jane and I just came off a seven-year series about older women. It was amazing to us during Grace and Frankie that we had such a diverse audience. I mean, young people came to the show and and uh, and then brought their grandmothers or their mothers and mothers and grandmothers brought their granddaughters and their kids. It was broad-based enough or whatever the story was. I don't know how uh, Netflix had the, uh, had the notion that it was, was gonna work, but uh, they did. So what's your Super Bowl, that thing that you wanna get done soon? Oh, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sort of torn between, you know, lying in a hammock by a, babbling stream and um, working my tail off until my tail drops. I, d I don't really know. I just have to take it as it comes. I don't know what it'll be. You could do a little bit of both, don't you think? You could do keep yeah, working no, on that's what stuff. I, that's what I've done. What, what I used to do if I, because uh, it was hard to get parts if you were, you know, I wanted to get serious acting roles and I'd already done so much comedy that people just thought of me that way. So um, I always created my own job. It's just the way my career went. When I, I was starting out, I'd go to the improv and I'd do a, some bit I was working on and uh, someone would say, you could really make it if you would do it this way or that way. I'd say, I don't like to see uh, a male comic do, you know, mother-in-law jokes or his wife's jokes and, and so on. I said, I'd rather do the mother-in-law mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that you can see what she was like. <laughs> That's Lily Tomlin. She stars in 80 for Brady, playing in theaters now. It is very, very funny. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Aisha. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station 
and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Made in Cookware, Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's coming up on 10 o'clock as Weekend Edition Sunday continues, and it's 32 degrees in Boston. Some sunshine today, a breezy Sunday, and highs in the mid-40s. Lows overnight in the low 30s. Tomorrow, a mostly cloudy start to your Monday, and then becoming sunny, and highs tomorrow in the mid-40s. Tuesday should be mostly cloudy with highs in the low 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Cabot with Race and Song, a musical conversation. Alistair Mook and Reggie Harris explore perspectives. Free February 16th. TheCabot.org. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that make your world bigger. I'm Lisa Mullins. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England, and your support will bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including two dozen long-stemmed red roses. Visit WBUR.org. I'm All Things Considered executive producer Jonathan Kane, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. The U.S. shot down a suspected Chinese spy balloon on President Biden's order. It successfully took it down, and I want to compliment our aviators who did it. Now, China is saying the U.S. overreacted. We have the latest. And there's lots of news about the anguish of black mothers who lose their children to violence. But today, we take a look at the joys of black motherhood. Plus, S.G. Lewis talks his new album, Audio Lust and Higher Love. And there's always the puzzle. Stay with us. It's Sunday, February 5th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. President Biden is set to deliver his State of the Union address this week. It's scheduled for Tuesday night, and he's likely to make the case that the economy is healthy under his watch. NPR's Franco Ordonez says Russia's war in Ukraine is also something to look for. Last year, he had rousing bipartisan ovations when he called for support for Ukraine. But it's been a year, you know, since the invasion, and there is a growing number of Republicans who have been speaking out more about the levels of money and aid leaving the U.S. for Ukraine. And it's having an impact on some voters. You know, Biden's going to make a case that it's in the U.S. interest to keep supporting Ukraine. On Friday, the administration confirmed that 
Longer-range weapons are included in the latest military aid package for Ukraine worth more than $2.1 billion. The Pentagon's week-long monitoring of a Chinese balloon floating above the U.S. has turned into an underwater recovery operation. NPR's Amy Held has more on efforts to retrieve debris after a U.S. fighter jet shot that balloon down with a missile off the South Carolina coast. Debris from the balloon has spread over a seven-mile radius, sinking nearly 50 feet down into the Atlantic Ocean. Multiple ships, unmanned vessels, and Navy divers preparing to bring it back up. The goal? To learn more about what China was doing starting January 28th, when the Pentagon says the Chinese surveillance balloon entered U.S. airspace over Alaska. And as it drifted down over Canada, back over the U.S., turning eastward, the Pentagon says they were scrutinizing it and taking steps to prevent China from collecting sensitive information. Beijing maintains it was a civilian craft blown astray. If the recovery is successful, a senior defense official says they can ascertain the balloon's technical capabilities up close. Amy Held, NPR News. The train that derailed in eastern Ohio Friday night is still burning. Officials have said air quality monitors have shown no levels of concern, but East Palestine residents within a mile remain evacuated, and emergency crews are keeping their distance. The train was carrying hazardous material, and Fire Chief Keith Drabick says there are worries about chemical runoff. Doing continuous testing and uh, putting in safeguards to prevent any further downstream flow of the, that material. Federal officials say uh, several cars containing vinyl chloride were among the 50 that derailed and have been exposed to the fire. However, no injuries have been, have been reported so far. Former Pakistani President Pervez Musharraf is dead. He was 79 and had been living in self-imposed exile in Dubai. A spokesman for Pakistan's diplomatic mission in Dubai says Musharraf passed away today following a prolonged illness. Media reports in Pakistan say a special flight will bring Musharraf's body back to Pakistan tomorrow. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. People around Boston are getting a big swing from bitter cold to relatively mild. Yesterday, temperatures reached a record low for the date of negative 10 degrees. And today, temperatures are expected to reach the mid-40s. National Weather Service meteorologist Rob Magnia says there's no official record keeping for this type of large difference between low temps and high temps on back-to-back days. Still, he said this is unusual. Yeah, it's definitely abnormal to see the uh, you know the cold come and go like that. You, usually, when we get those kind of blasts of Arctic air, it usually lasts for at least two days. This was kind of more of a 24 to maybe 36 hour event. The lowest temperature ever recorded in Boston was 18 below zero in 1934. A pipe at Boston Medical Center froze and burst in the cold weather last night. According to its social media accounts, the hospital's emergency department had to move all patients to other areas of the hospital. The emergency department at BMC will stay closed until Tuesday. The cold temperatures also caused problems that required an evacuation at the Wang Theater just before the start of a show yesterday. Norwell native Jennifer Coolidge braved the cold yesterday to accept Harvard's Hasty Pudding Award. The theatrical organization has given the award since 1951 to women making an impact on the entertainment world. Coolidge led a parade through Cambridge. Her acting credits include The White Lotus, Best in Show, American Pie, and Legally Blonde, which is set at Harvard. 
Massachusetts will be well represented at the Grammy Awards tonight in Los Angeles. Local artists in the running include Aoife O'Donovan, as heard here, with several songwriting nominations, Laurie McKenna for Best Country Song for a Taylor Swift track, and the Berkeley Indian Ensemble for Best Global Music Album. It's 34 degrees in Boston. Some sunshine today, breezy, highs in the mid-40s, lows overnight in the low 30s. Tomorrow, becoming sunny and highs reaching the mid-40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia for 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. The balloon may be popped, but the saga continues. Yesterday afternoon, a U.S. F-22 fighter jet took aim and fired a missile that successfully brought down what U.S. officials say was a Chinese spy balloon. Here's President Biden afterwards. They successfully took it down, and I want to compliment our aviators who did it. Today, China angrily called that an overreaction. NPR's Emily Fang joins us now for more. Hi, Emily. Good morning, Aisha. So can you tell us more about China's reaction to this situation? You know what? Somewhat unusually, China at first took the soft tone. They admitted the balloon was theirs, but they said it was purely a civilian research airship. It said it regretted the airship had been blown off course and that it had ended up in U.S. airspace accidentally. Then this weekend, as you mentioned, the U.S. shot the balloon down and it was uh, shot down over water because this thing was so huge. It, it has the volume of almost three city buses. So the U.S. couldn't risk that debris falling on people. And that was the moment when China came out with much stronger language. The Chinese foreign ministry expressed what they called full dissatisfaction and protest against the balloon being shot down and said this was a, quote, violation of international practice. And then the Chinese defense ministry jumped in and said that they reserved the right to use, quote, any necessary means in response to the balloon being taken down. Okay, so, but of course, even before it was brought down, Secretary of State Antony Blinken had called off a planned visit to China. Right, this is a really big deal. Secretary of State Blinken was supposed to be in China, like, literally right now as part of a diplomatic effort to patch up the U.S.-China relationship. And instead, we're at this an another critical juncture. Uh, the clock is ticking now for both countries if they want to fix the relationship because Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy is expected to visit Taiwan in, in April. This is the island that China claims as its own, and so a visit is likely going to provoke a huge reaction from China. Now, ideally, Blinken would have already gone to China. There would have been some kind of detente in the relationship and diplomatic talks to lower the temperature globally and set a floor in the relationship before another crisis comes along. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. And now the ball is kind of in China's court to do something to make up for the balloon. But as we saw this weekend, they've taken a much more hostile tack, if you will. What could either country do to move on from this balloon situation? Or, you know, are you hearing that the relationship's going to continue to deteriorate? Well, it's a bit of an unusual situation, right, over a balloon. But China could extend an olive branch. You know, both countries might promise to not spy on each other with balloons again. 
But unfortunately, there's likely no improvement in the relationship just yet. And that's because the situation highlights how diplomats in both countries are really not fully in control of the relationship. Diplomatically, there was this will on both sides to stabilize the US-China relationship. That's why Blinken was supposed to head to China. But the flashpoints in this relationship have come from outside the diplomatic establishment, from the military in the US that monitored the balloon and leaked its existence, to Congress, for example, the Speaker of the House potentially visiting Taiwan. And so all this means we have a very unpredictable year coming up for US-China relations. That's NPR's Emily Fang. Thank you so much, Emily. Thanks, Aisha. We'll turn now to Dave Shulman. He's Senior Director of the Global China Hub at the Atlantic Council. Good morning. Good morning, Aisha. Thanks for having me on. So can you put this point in the U.S.-China relationship in context for us? Because just in the recent past, there's been, and I got a little list here, President Obama's so-called pivot to Asia and then the failed Trans-Pacific Partnership to counter a rising China, President Trump's economic sanctions, but then also he had a lot of praise for Chinese President Xi, then then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, followed by Biden and by Biden and Xi meeting just a couple of months later. So where do you think things stood before this balloon situation? Well, that's a very good list. I mean, I, I think that the point is that this uh, incident happens in the midst of uh, what is a very fraught time in U.S.-China relations, in particular over the last year, uh, as we've had uh, tensions grow over China's indirect support for Russia's war in Ukraine, uh, over expanded U.S. Uh, export controls on critical uh, technologies to China, uh, and of course, uh, in particular, as you mentioned, over Taiwan uh, and Speaker Pelosi's then Speaker Pelosi's trip to Taiwan in August and China's uh, unprecedented reaction to it. Uh, there was some hope that there could be um, a, a really um, substantial effort to build upon the summit between President Biden and Xi Jinping in November on the sidelines of the G20, uh, which you mentioned, which was their first uh, in-person meeting. Um, and as, uh, as was just mentioned in the interview, was meant to set this floor under the relationship so there could continue to be a certain level of, of tension, a certain level of abrasiveness in the relationship without it going off the rails and heading in the direction of potential conflict. This visit from Secretary Blinken was meant to build upon uh, that summit uh, and was meant to continue to build those guardrails on the relationship. With the visit being uh, rescheduled or delayed, um, there's a, a question now as to whether or not you can continue to, to build that stability in uh, with uh, a lot of storm clouds on the horizon D in the relationship over Taiwan and other issues. D does the balloon strike you as a deliberate provocation? Like what expl explanation makes the most sense to you? I do not think it makes sense that, the, for, uh, for what I know of the Chinese government, how they think of U.S.-China relations, that they would have deliberately timed this balloon uh, to to be uh, to be going over the United States uh, and potentially to scuttle this important diplomatic visit from Secretary Blinken. China has an interest in um, inserting some more stability into the relationship, particularly as they're dealing with uh, significant domestic problems around the um, the rapid pulling back from their COVID policy, significant uh, economic challenges. Um, and I think they genuinely wanted this visit uh, to go well. Um, as we've heard, uh, China has uh, been sending these kinds of balloons over the United States and other places before. I think there was not an expectation that it would be discovered, certainly. And I think this was something that was routinized uh, with the PLA, the Chinese military, um, you know, sending, expecting to send this over uh, as part of something that was pre-scheduled 
Um, and of course now I think there's probably some discussions internally about the wisdom of uh, continuing to send that balloon across uh, right ahead of, of Secretary Blinken's proposed visit or expected visit. I, I, you know, you in, uh, you talked about um, the visit. It, obviously, Secretary of State Blinken's visit has been called off. What were you hoping to see out of that visit? And, and how long do you think it will take for the U.S. and China to get diplom diplomacy back on track? Or is it hopeless right now? That's that's exactly the right question. I mean, I think no one was expecting significant deliverables or outcomes from this visit. Uh, we knew that the United States was going to raise human rights, China's relationship with Russia, um, Taiwan certainly was going to come up as well as uh, technology, but no one expected there to be some sort of significant resolution of those uh, those major uh, issues uh, out of this visit. But as I mentioned, there was hope that this would continue to build in uh, that, that floor into the relationship and continue to build on some of those communication mechanisms that had been uh, cut off after Speaker Pelosi's uh, visit to Taiwan. With that not, um, with, with the two sides not having the opportunity to restore some of those communication channels and continue to build uh, that level of stability in the relationship, uh, the question now is, is how, do you, how do you restore that? Maybe Secretary Blinken can fit in a, a quick visit um, in the next several weeks. The problem is the calendar. China has uh, its uh, annual legislative session, the National People's Congress, coming up in March. And then, as was mentioned in the interview, you have the potential for Speaker McCarthy uh, to go to Taiwan in April, which will, will set the uh, relationship in a much more fraught direction. So, so the, the calendar makes this very difficult, but I think there is an interest in both sides in restoring uh, those, those diplomatic engagements and trying to ensure that they gird the relationship against the challenges that are coming. That's Dave Shulman, Senior Director of the Global China Hub at the Atlantic Council. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Aisha. There's a new study from the Justice Department, and I'll warn you, it's about sexual assault. The study finds that prison workers who assault the people in their custody rarely face legal consequences. NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson has our report. The Justice Department findings are based on cases where assaults by corrections workers have been reported, investigated, and substantiated. That's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the sexual abuse that's happening inside of our prisons and jails. Linda McFarland leads Just Detention International. Her nonprofit group works to end sexual abuse in all forms of detention. McFarland says most incarcerated people are afraid to report because corrections workers have so much power over them. I've worked with sexual assault survivors in one way or another for more than 30 years. And almost every survivor who I've ever spoken to who made a report said the reason they did it was not for themselves, but so that someone else wouldn't get hurt. But a new report from the Bureau of Justice Statistics highlights how few consequences the abusers face. Perpetrators face legal action like arrest, referral for prosecution, or guilty pleas in fewer than four in ten incidents. Emily Bueller, who works at the BJS, says the study found incarcerated survivors don't get much help. Only 36 percent of incidents of either staff sexual misconduct or staff sexual harassment resulted in the victim being provided counseling or mental health treatment. And in nearly 40% of incidents, there was no medical treatment either offered or provided for the victim. In recent years, the Justice Department has investigated women's prisons in New Jersey and Florida, finding sexual violence there violated prisoners' constitutional rights and amounted to cruel and unusual punishment. 
Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Thanks for sharing your Sunday with us here at 90.9 WBUR. At 1 this afternoon, you'll have a new chance to connect with Tiziana Deering and Radio Boston. Then keep listening at 2 o'clock for It's Been a Minute at its new time on WBUR. Coming to WBUR City Space tomorrow, James Beard award-winning celebrity chef Ming Tsai. He'll discuss his career and his love of East-West cooking. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. It's 38 degrees in Boston. Some sunshine today, a breezy Sunday, and highs in the mid-40s. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR supports your commitment to curiosity, Order yours now to save 10%. Visit WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. Join artists, educators, and counselors and turn your potential into a rewarding career. Explore programs at leslie.edu. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. The train that derailed in Ohio Friday night is still burning. Officials have said air quality monitors have shown no levels of concern, but residents within a mile remain under evacuation orders and emergency crews are keeping their distance from the hazardous materials on board. Former Pakistani President Pervez Musharraf is dead. He was 79 and had been living in exile in Dubai. A spokesman for Pakistan's diplomatic mission in Dubai says Musharraf passed away today following a prolonged illness. And Beyonce could break a music industry record when the Grammy Awards are handed out tonight in Los Angeles. She's won 28 Grammys over her career and could break the all-time record of 31. She's heading into the ceremony with nine nominations. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from LifeLock by Norton, reminding consumers that sensitive information sent online may not always be secure. Learn more at LifeLock.com NPR. From ECMC Foundation, working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ECMCFoundation.org and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Europe is taking another step to prevent Russia from getting money to pay for its war in Ukraine. The EU has already stopped buying Russian crude. Now it's going to stop buying Russian oil products like diesel fuel that's key to European transportation. NPR international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam has been covering the economic penalties the West is imposing on Russia, and she joins us now. Good morning, Jackie. Good morning, Aisha. So tell us more about what's being cut off today. Right. So the EU is banning all imports of refined products made from Russian oil. And that 
you know, sounds pretty dry and technical, but Aisha, these products are critical. You're looking at jet fuel, gasoline, and diesel. And unlike here in the United States, many more vehicles in Europe run on diesel fuel. And so too does industry there. Um, last year, Europe imported more than half of its diesel, or almost half of its diesel, pardon me, from Russia. And not anymore. It's having to look elsewhere uh, for these products. So this is a big decision by the EU, and it's because it wants to tighten, you know, the economic noose around the Kremlin and slow the money that's going into its war chest. So that's Europe, but can Russia still sell these products to other countries? It can, yes, if the diesel and gasoline and these other products are sold at or below a price cap that has now been imposed by the EU and the G7, the group of industrialized nations and its allies. So that means Western shippers and insurers and any marine services will be allowed to handle these refined products as long as they stay at or below the price cap. So let's say for diesel, that's $100 a barrel. And, you know, you, you might wonder why they're creating this sort of loophole um, with the price caps, but this is a way to ensure that these products keep flowing to avoid any sort of shock to the markets, but at the same time, limiting the amount of money that Russia makes. So, you know, all this is similar to a ban on Russian crude oil that was implemented in December, and it also has a price cap. So if Europe is cutting itself off from Russian oil and its products, um, like what other sources are available? Like they had depended a lot on Russian energy. So where are they getting the oil and gas they need now? You know, what we're seeing happen is this global shift in the flow of crude oil and refined products. In other words, Europe is having to find new sources. And there are geopolitical implications. For example, the refined products like diesel could come from places like China. Also natural gas, I mean, there's a lot of it now coming from the U.S. Um, that's heading into Europe. The other thing is Europe is willing and able to pay much more for this energy than some poor countries, such as, you know, Pakistan or Bangladesh. And those countries are not getting as much or any supplies of oil or gas now because of these sanctions that have been put on uh, this Russian energy. Do we know if these efforts to punish Russia's economy are having an effect? Well, you know, the ban on these refined products just started today. And Russia has been buying and storing this diesel and other products ahead of time. So it's too soon. But, you know, Western nations have been putting layer upon layer of sanctions on Russia over the past year on its banks, individuals, businesses, you name it. And this ban is just the latest. Asia, sanctions take a long time to set in, but there are some time or, you know, some signs that the Russian economy is starting to sputter. Big question is, will it force Vladimir Putin to change his course on the war in Ukraine? And none of the analysts I've spoken with uh, was confident of that happening. That's NPR international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam. Thank you so much, Jackie. Thank you. In California, people continue to grapple with the aftermath of January's big storms that many climate scientists predict will only worsen as the world continues to warm. KQED climate reporter Ezra David Romero visits a recently flooded neighborhood where residents are looking for a lasting fix. Antonio Lopez walks a recently flooded neighborhood in East Palo Alto, about half an hour south of San Francisco along the bay. A pump removes water from a parking garage that San Francisco Creek turned into a lake. A New Year's Eve storm dropped nearly four inches of rain, engorging the creek. 
floodwaters poured into the community. Around two dozen cars were swamped. But the ones you see here, I almost guarantee you, they're totaled. They can't be moved because the water hit their motor. Lopez is the city's vice mayor. He helped a woman frantically trying to get into her car the day of the flood. It was heartbreaking, man, trying to salvage her possessions from her car because the water came up all the way to the window. Early estimates put the damage at more than $100,000. Statewide, the economic losses from flooding are estimated between $5 and $7 billion. That's according to Moody's RMS, which models global catastrophe risk and solutions. President Joe Biden visited the region in mid-January to tour flooded communities. In the San Francisco Bay Area, I've instructed my administration to bring every element of the federal government together with the help of immediate needs to long-term rebuilding. Federal disaster assistance is available for nine California counties, including San Mateo, where East Palo Alto is. In East Palo Alto, community organizer Maricela Ramos leads an effort to get outside aid to help pay for local damages. She says the totaled cars were many residents' primary mode of transportation to get to their jobs, to generate money, to pay rent, and to buy food for their kids. San Francisco Creek has flooded many times. A new study out last month in the journal Nature Climate Change projects the most extreme winter storms will only get more intense. Study co-author Ruby Lung is with the U.S. Pacific Northwest National Lab. Assuming we continue to use fossil energy in, in a similar way, we project about 30% increase in the total precipitation, but such number could be reduced if we can do something about it. She says all that water can strain or even break through levees like floodwaters did in Monterey County last month. The information that we used before to design the infrastructure may not be relevant anymore, and we need to incorporate knowledge that we now have about how the future may be changing. In East Palo Alto, city and regional leaders have already been working on a long-term fix to allow more water to flow from San Francisco Creek to the bay. They have long had plans to build a new bridge and deepen and widen the creek channel. We know we can't completely do away with the risk of flooding. Margaret Bruce leads the effort. She's the executive director of the San Francisco Creek Joint Powers Authority. The plan is to protect the community from future catastrophic flood events. We can no longer plan our future looking in the rearview mirror. Bruce says it will cost at least $50 million. State or federal infrastructure money could help. Otherwise, San Mateo County, East Palo Alto, and nearby cities like Palo Alto and Menlo Park are on the hook to finish it. Instead of having the creek as a boundary, the creek has ended up being the thing that joins the counties in these three cities. If funded, the creek restoration could be completed as soon as next year. For NPR News, I'm Ezra David Romero in East Palo Alto. The cries of Ravon Wells were heart-wrenching. Her son, Tyree Nichols, killed at the hands of Memphis police, was laid to rest last week. It's a hard thing to see and feel and Black parents feel it deeply. Elaine Marsh has six adult children. She needs that village, and I feel that we are that village. We reached out to a few Black mothers who told us they need that village too, to help them get through the challenges and celebrate the joys of parenting. Lenise McCalla says she's loved seeing her two children develop into good people. Listening to them grow and, and watching them grow and it has to be the most rewarding thing ever to be a mom. 
There's a podcast about raising black children. It's called the Mama's Den Podcast. I asked producer Cody Elaine Oliver about her first experience of motherhood. Me wanting to be a mom and even my husband um, always wanting to be a dad, like we clicked on that early on. Everything was easy really? with our first. Now, mm -hmm. granted, the second time we had twins. Okay. But with our first, Ooh. there was no sacrifice that was challenging. It was just like, this is what you got to do. I also expected the worst. Mm -hmm. So anything that went smoothly or even went slightly uncomfortably, whether, you know, we got peed on or whatever, it was like, well, at least we didn't get pooped on. <laughs> you know, everything was like, it could be worse. So one thing that I have really enjoyed lately with my children, who are nine, six, and five, I forget mm -hmm. sometimes, um, is that they have these rich conversations with each other. Like mm -hmm. my son would be like, well, I, I'm going to be driving two years before Gabrielle, his younger sister, and then I'm not going to drive you nowhere. And she's <laughs> like, what? You're not going to drive me nowhere? You got to drive. You know, like they're just going back and forth with these mm -hmm. conversations. Is there something that gives you that sort of joy? First off, I love those moments too. Like this, just listen to them. Yes. Sometimes say the craziest yes. thing. I mean, girl. <laughs> well, I love seeing them be sweet to each other. Mm -hmm. We had put them to bed. It was the weekend, so they got to sleep in the same room. And I heard like a bump and silence and then crying. And I run out of my room and they're all coming into the hallway. And one of them is crying and he's holding his head and, and his twin brother is um, behind him but the way that his arm is outstretched you know like like when you want to hug a friend but you're like are, are you okay like it was yeah. so cute the older brother was the culprit so he was a little more reserved and he's like are you okay like <laughs> yeah. what what is he about to yeah. tell yeah. you gonna tell yeah. on me you know but the way that i watched them like be so curious to make sure he was okay was just like everything oh yeah i was so mad that they had done that but i was like Oh, look at y'all. Y'all don't even need me. This yeah. is adorable. <laughs> yes. The reason why we really wanted to do this is because mm -hmm. people focus so much on the trauma and the mm -hmm. tragedy that black women and mothers face. And we wanted to present a fuller picture. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. was that one of your thoughts behind starting the Mama's Den podcast? Yeah, absolutely. With the Mama's Den in particular, I love to share that, like, these are women that I admire and love and knew them all individually, Ashley Chia, Melanie Fiona, and Felicia Latour. And I was like, you guys, I want to hear you talk all the time about motherhood. I started it because I think that sisterhood is important within motherhood. And same for, you know, fathers as well. It takes a village. It takes a village to help. It takes a village to make sure you're not feeling alone or isolated in this journey. And that's across the board. Mm -hmm. And also to laugh and to celebrate. What, what do you think about that idea of like, obviously, you know, it's not unique that mothers would need like some sisterhood, some guidance. Mm -hmm. But is there something unique about like the black American experience that the sisterhood is a bit different? Do you feel mm -hmm. that way? Yeah, absolutely. Plainly put, our children and, and us as black adults are being hunted, are being criminalized. And we don't want to talk about that all the time, but what we do want is to recognize that in one another, that when we're talking about what school does your child go to and how's their experience, that experience is 
different at a predominantly white school mm-hmm. than it is at a at another school. You kind of don't have to have the the hardest part of the conversations in any way other than to say like how are you doing mm-hmm. and how are you addressing this and mm-hmm. what did you say to your kid about that there's a comfort in us having those conversations amongst each other so is there something that you want like the world to know about black mothers that you feel like is lost in some of the conversations i think anybody who understands the parenthood journey knows that there's joy Mm-hmm. and knows that, that there's challenges, right? That mm-hmm. we all need to be nicer to the mama whose kids are screaming at the grocery store or on the airplanes or whatever. Like, But that the black motherhood journey does come with that added anxiety and fear of what it means for our children to simply be brown. I want the world to understand that we are carrying that weight every day mm-hmm. through the smiles, through the highs and lows of regular parenthood and that grace and kindness and allyship helps. That's Cody Elaine Oliver. She is a film and TV producer and podcaster. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. For decades, Iowa and New Hampshire have been the first two states to hold presidential caucuses or primaries. But members of the Democratic National Committee met in Philadelphia to approve a calendar for 2024, and it removes the Iowa caucuses from the early lineup and boosts states they say are more representative of the Democratic Party's diversity. NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports. All those in favor of approving the report say aye. Aye. All opposed nay. The ayes have it. And the report with that, DNC members upended their presidential primary calendar and ushered in a new era, one that DNC chair Jamie Harrison says is long overdue. It elevates diverse communities that are at the core of the Democratic Party. The DNC was looking at factors like diversity of the electorate and voter access when it began the process of changing the calendar nearly a year ago. Here's DNC member Mo Alethi. We've held lots of listening sessions and solicited input from DNC stakeholders from every region of the country, heard directly from 20 states and territories that wanted to get into the early window. The resulting calendar, which President Biden advocated for, in many ways rewards states that helped propel him to the White House in 2020, particularly South Carolina, which will now go first. New Hampshire and Nevada are to follow for a joint primary day, and Georgia and Michigan round out the early window. But the sweeping calendar changes are not without hurdles. Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, a Republican, has said both parties' primaries must be held on the same day to minimize election administration costs. And Republicans aren't planning to have Georgia in the early window. Wendy Davis, a DNC member from Georgia, said Democrats have to convince Republicans that moving up the primary isn't just good for Democrats, it's good for the state. People who are running for president will be be buying radio ads on our little radio stations. I mean, and that is an influx of revenue that if we're Super Tuesday, they don't get. And then there's New Hampshire, which has traditionally held the first primary. This is not, in this moment, about New Hampshire's history 
or our pride. This is about state law that we cannot unilaterally change. That's Joanne Dowdell of New Hampshire. She points to a state law that gives the Secretary of State, currently a Republican, the power to move the date of the primary to protect its first-in-the-nation status. Republicans also control the governorship, the House and the Senate in the state, something that puts New Hampshire Democrats in a no-win position, according to state party chair Ray Buckley. We know that New Hampshire will still hold the the first-in-the-nation primary, whether or not the DNC approves of it. But if that happens, Alethi says the DNC is prepared to mete out consequences. They wouldn't be the first time states have tried to jump the line. And I hope it doesn't come to that. But I think the DNC is probably better prepared to enforce this calendar than it ever has been. Those enforcements include stripping the state of its delegates and precluding presidential candidates from campaigning there. Both New Hampshire and Georgia have received extensions on meeting the DNC's requirements. Those open questions aren't good for the party, says Iowa DNC member Scott Brennan. We are creating a situation of continued uncertainty that will drag on throughout 2023. We can vote on this calendar. We can approve this calendar. But we will leave here with absolutely nothing settled. A panel of the DNC will meet again in June to evaluate where things stand. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, Philadelphia. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Woburn teacher strike continues. Negotiations are set to resume today. Both the educators and the city say they have agreed on a primary contract, but they say the disagreements persist regarding the return to work agreement. The strike has lasted a week. The Steamship Authority is reporting some service disruptions on the ferries between the Cape and Islands because of problems associated with the cold snap. Water pipes burst overnight on two ferries and another ferry developed a leak in a hydraulic line. Massachusetts will be well represented at the Grammy Awards tonight in Los Angeles. Local artists in the running include the Berkeley Indian Ensemble, nominated for Best Global Music Album, Laurie McKenna for Best Country Song for a Taylor Swift track, and Aoife O'Donovan with several songwriting nominations. It is 38 degrees in Boston, partly sunny today, breezy, and highs reaching the mid-40s. Overnight lows dropping to the low 30s. Tomorrow, a mostly cloudy start for your Monday and then becoming sunny with highs in the mid-40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Elizabeth Bain of Commonwealth Standard Realty, offering creative, custom solutions for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston. More at ElizabethBainHomes.com. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that make your world bigger. I'm Lisa Mullins. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England, and your support will bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including two dozen long-stemmed red roses. Visit WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks 
are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hi there, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So, Will, could you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener Samuel Mace of Smyrna, Delaware. I said, name a fruit in one word. Drop the last two letters, and the remaining letters can be rearranged to name two other fruits. What are they? The answer is pomegranate. Drop the T and E. You can rearrange the rest of the letters to spell pear and mango. Okay. Our puzzle winner this week is Carol Baldoff of Columbus, Ohio. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. How long have you been playing the puzzle? Probably at least 10 to 15 years. I was first introduced to Puzzle by my sister, Sue, who lives in Massachusetts. And she's been playing since the postcard days. But she's never won? She has never won. That is correct. And, yeah, that's hard. (laughs) (laughs) She's shaking her fist at the radio right now. Yes, right now. (laughs) She may well be, yes. (laughs) So I got to ask you, Carol, are you ready to play the puzzle? I am ready to play the puzzle, and I will graciously accept both of your help. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Okay, so take it away, Will. All right, Carol and Aisha, I'm going to give you some five-letter words. For each one, add a certain letter of the alphabet twice without rearranging the other letters to make a common seven-letter word. For example, if I said eaten, E-A-T-E-N, and add two H's, you would say heathen. Because the letters E-A-T-E-N say in order, and you've inserted or added two H's. Okay. Here's number one. Verge, V-E-R-G-E, and add two A's. Average. Average is it. Number two is alloy, A-L-L-O-Y, add two B's. Ball boy? Ball boy is it, is it in tennis? Raked, R-A-K-E-D, C. Crack. Cracked, you got it. Ivies, I-V-I-E-S, D. Divide. Divides. Gland, G-L-A-N-D, add two E's. Hmm. That's not quite coming to me yet. Here's your hint. It's a past tense verb. Well, something, hmm. Gleaned. Gleaned, you got it. Oh, here's your next one. Stain, S-T-A-I-N-G. Staging. Staging is it. Unfed, U-N-F-E-D-I. Unified. Uh Uh-huh. Icing, I-C-I-N-G. K. Kicking. Kicking is it. Wordy, W-O-R-D-Y, L. Worldly. Uh Uh-huh. Later, L-A-T-E-R-N. Lantern. Uh Uh-huh. Minus, M-I-N-U-S, O. Ominous. That's right. 
Fogie, F-O-G-E-Y, R. Forgery. That's right. And your last one is Exile, E-X-I-L-E-T. Textile. Nice job. Oh my goodness. I'm glad you got that because I was writing it down and when you said it, I got it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then we we worked well together. Yeah, I'm glad you did not need a lot of help with this. Um, But how do you feel? I feel very um, fulfilled and a little uh, guilty because I'm going to have to call my sister. So. Well, don't feel too bad about it. Maybe you can share some of your winnings with her. For playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin, as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org puzzle. And Carol, what member station do you listen to? I listen to WOSU 89.7. That's Carol Baldoff of Columbus, Ohio. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Well, thank you both. It's been a real treat. So, Will, what's next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from Peter Collins of Ann Arbor, Michigan. You'll remember he had the challenge two weeks ago in which memorial could be rearranged to spell Lima and Rome. Well, this time, name a food item you might order at a fast food restaurant. The first, second, and last letters in order, name another food item. Remove those letters, and the remaining letters spell backward, name yet another food item. What foods are these? So again, a food item you might order at a fast food restaurant. The first, second, and last letters in order, name another food item. Remove those letters, and the remaining letters spell backward, name yet another food item. What foods are these? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, February 9th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thanks, Will. Thank you, Aisha. In Austin, Texas this week, widespread power outages after an ice storm. And as member station KUT's Mose Bouchel reports, now there are questions about why the storm hit the electric system so hard. Earlier this week, two sounds characterized life in Austin. The crackling of ice in tree limbs and the ominous crash as those limbs fell to the ground. It was those broken trees that caused most of the outages here and what the head of Austin Energy, Jackie Sargent, called a historic weather event. We are experiencing one of the most widespread ice storms to hit Austin and certainly one of the worst. But as rare as ice storms like these are, they do happen. To answer why this time was so bad, some point to a change in city policy around 15 years ago that relaxed rules for tree trimming around power lines. Michael Weber is a UT mechanical engineering professor who served on Austin's utility commission back then. He says the change came after politically connected neighborhoods complained that the city was too aggressive when it came to vegetation management. They didn't want their pretty trees in their yards touched by the city. For years, the utility let trees grow much closer to lines than is industry standard. Finally, in 2019, it reversed course. 
Elton Richards, who runs the utilities vegetation management program, says it will take years more to go back and clear overgrown lines, but lax trimming standards don't explain the extent of the damage. This truly is an act of God. There's no other way that you can say it. You take a 40-foot tree that's coming down, there's no vegetation management in the world that would prevent that. Austin has gone through a string of extreme weather events recently, from the big Arctic blast of 2021 to a drought and heat wave last year. Even this January was, up until the ice storm, one of the warmest on record for Austin. Tree experts say all those extremes have a cumulative effect to weaken trees. Camille Wiseman is a woodland ecologist with the Texas A&M Forest Service. In addition to the accumulating ice, those weaknesses are kind of um, emphasized. And so that is what can lead to some of these breaks. The outages have brought renewed debate over the benefits of burying power lines. Austin Energy says it's just too expensive, but Michael Weber thinks it might make financial sense. Closing schools or economic activity four days in a row is really expensive and very disruptive. Then we tend not to price in the cost of disruption or lack of reliability into our analyses. While that debate unfolds, a new sound has taken over the city. The sound of chainsaws as crews work to clean up the mess. For NPR News, I'm Mose Bouchelle in Austin. We have a Grammy preview elsewhere in this program, so if you hear it but miss tonight's awards ceremony, check out Morning Edition to see if we were on point. They'll have a wrap-up of the honorees, the overlooked, and whatever else happens on and off the stage. Listen live tomorrow morning at this station's website or npr.org. Once love can be selfish and selfless, and musician S.G. Lewis explores these two magnetic poles in his new album, Audio Lust and Higher Love. Its electronic vibe reveals the spectrum of love's sensations. Artist S.G. Lewis joins us now from Los Angeles. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So, I mean, this album, it is ambitious. It's 15 songs, more than an hour long, and it's divided into two parts, right? Like, can you talk about the structure and, like, how this idea came to you? So I started work on this album pretty much immediately after um, finishing my first album, and I found myself in sort of in the middle of the pandemic with not a lot of other things going on. So... Um, it was definitely kind of a period of sort of forced introspection in a way. And also, as I started to write about um, my experiences, that I could kind of be categorized into one of these two sort of um, mindsets. This kind of first being this rushy, infatuated, kind of um, slightly toxic approach to love and relationships. And then the, the second being this kind of more fulfilled, actualized, longer lasting version of, I guess, what we would call real love. You know, one of the 
songs that like immediately jumped out to me was Oh Laura. Um, and to me, I, it was sounding like a breakup song or like a get away from me song and never talk to me again. There's, there's so many um, songs that are sort of very personal to me on the album, but it's really looking outward and it's writing sort of about um, someone else's situation. It's basically the moment of realization or the moment that you find out that someone has sort of um, been unfaithful to you and kind of the that sort of space in between the moment where the other person realizes they've been found out. It's kind of that like holding that knowledge and it's kind of processing that information and the feelings that kind of come with that realization of betrayal. So, I mean, I picked up on some, to me, it felt like some like 80s, 90s, like house hip hop influences in your song vibe like this. led you to this like distinct sound like were you trying to go for that kind of like 80s vibe i have a group of friends and we all kind of typically trade um records but usually they're club records so a lot of us are djs and stuff and we would share records that we found so in the middle of the pandemic without the context of clubbing and live music the sort of um, the context for those records sort of disappeared. So we found that the records we started sharing um, were kind of, we did like a very different kind of digging, sort of old 80s yacht rock that, you know, records that may have been big at some point, but we were all kind of born um, after that era. So for us, it was like discovering this kind of new music when it wasn't new at all, you know? So then, some of the musicianship was so incredible, like the instrumentation and stuff. So all of the artists that ended up on the record were sort of very intentional and there was, um, they sort of really embraced the, the, the concept. And, and yeah, it just, um, it was really cool to see those artists sort of um, to resonate with that concept. You got your start in music as a DJ in Liverpool's club scene. And I mean, I understand that you still use many of those kind of old school DJing techniques when making music today. Do you feel like something is lost in the way that DJs work now? Well, the problem is when anything becomes uh, super profitable, then it's kind of, um, it's become about, you know, getting people in the door and, and selling tickets. And um, and at that point, the music can become compromised. But I think that the more truth that you live in your music, the, the more it resonates anyway, because people in general have an amazing sort of subconscious um, sense of when something is genuine. As humans, we're very finely tuned to feel it in, in music. So um, the truth will always sort of win in music eventually. So one of the last songs on your album is called Something About Your Love. 
Have you learned what this something is? Have you found some answers? I think that something about your love is really just a song that's it's expressing that initial bewilderment at that feeling and you know that new feeling when something is novel and you know that feeling is exciting I think that that's kind of you know it takes time to um, figure out what it is but um yeah I'd like to think that I've found a few answers Singer-songwriter S.G. Lewis has a new album out, Audio Lust and Higher Love. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks for the great chat. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From Made in Cookware, Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs, for chefs, and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is 90.9 WBUR. Check back on the news with WBUR again this afternoon. Just tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app. And start your Monday with WBUR. You'll get the story on an effort that involves hundreds of pregnant and postpartum patients in Boston monitoring their blood pressure at home. You'll hear about new approaches to improving pregnancy and birth outcomes. That's tomorrow morning here on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Maplewood Country Day Camp, family-run for 57 years with children's programs designed to teach life skills, putting the fun in fundamentals. MaplewoodYearRound.com. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that bring joy to your life. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England, and your support will bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including a 12-month Flower of the Month subscription that begins with a rose arrangement on Valentine's Day. Visit WBUR.org. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUH Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.